All right, hey, well, welcome everyone. Um, what a morning already to reflect on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Um, we're going to do that even more fully later in the service because it's going to be a special morning uh, where we will take communion as a church. And last week was special. We had our first baptism, uh, my first baptism here at the church. Uh, Sean and Jasmine, our friends, were baptized uh, there in the baptismal behind me. And this Sunday is going to be special as well because we're going to be having communion here. Uh, it is a little bit out of the ordinary in this that normally um, our approach to preaching is to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and do our best to explain the meaning of the text to the congregation, applying it uh, to our lives. Um, but the last couple of weeks have been topical because we had to talk about baptism a little bit. We have to talk about communion a little bit this morning. And then next week, we'll jump back into our, our series through uh, the letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. Um, and so this is a little bit different, but uh, hopefully it will be edifying as we expose exposition, we do an exposition of what the Word of God says about communion before we take it. It'll hopefully deepen our understanding of what we're doing. All right, the first command God ever gave to humanity after creating them in Genesis chapter 1 was to fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. It was humanity's charter for the world uh, to, to spread out, to have children, and to reflect the glory of God wherever they went. The second statement of God toward mankind was not a command, but it was a declaration of a gift. You can, if you want, follow with me in Genesis 1, although we'll move quickly from Genesis to other places, so you'll be flipping through the text a lot this morning. If you're going to follow along, I would encourage you to at least try. <laughs> We're in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, where God says to Adam and Eve, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth. It's a gift. I give this to you. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. You go down to verse 30. A little bit later, I have given every green plant for food. You go to chapter 2 of Genesis, and you'll find even there that God is putting Adam and Eve in a garden, and He will say to them, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, but it's also something else, He says, it's good for food. Interesting, right? God is creating the world. He creates a garden. He puts uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and He fills this garden with good food, things to eat and things to enjoy. He basically says it's all yours. It's all yours to enjoy. Spread out over the whole world. Enjoy the food that I've given you. Enjoy the feast, the bounty of the world, the good creation that I've given you. And of course, you know the story. There's one restriction, right? And that one restriction is a food. It's a, uh, I was almost going to say apple. It's not an apple. We don't know if it's an apple. It's a fruit. Got to be theologically accurate here. It's a fruit. There's something on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says they're not supposed to take it and eat it. Uh, he wants them to resist that. And we also know a couple chapters after that that the fall occurs and the fall occurs because Adam and Eve do not obey their Lord's directions and they partake of that forbidden meal, the forbidden fruit. The whole world was a feast to enjoy. The whole world was given to them to take and eat and enjoy and they sin and they break the fellowship of God by enjoying a meal that was forbidden. Now, at that point in the redemptive story after the fall, uh, God could have and would have been right to judge them and wipe them away and condemn humanity for their sin, to give them the just punishment. But amazingly, He does not do that. In fact, God is so interested in loving His people and being committed to them and even demonstrating fellowship with them that from that point forward you will see him moving toward humanity in ways to bless even despite of their sin yes judgment comes 
in the form of death, and we all experience that in our world today. Judgment comes in the form of a curse. We experience that today. Judgment comes in original sin. We're all fallen sinners. That is here today. But we also see that throughout the entire Bible, God is interested in being with His people, in blessing His people. And one of the things that He's doing again and again throughout Scripture is He's instituting meals for them. Interesting, right? He starts planning meals with his people to demonstrate the depth of fellowship that he's going to have with his people. Exodus 24, you can start in verse 9 if you want to turn there. God's making a covenant with his people. This is the old covenant. Uh, The words of the law have been read to the people of Israel, and Israel is responding to Moses' reading of the law. They respond by saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. There's an affirmative agreement that they're going to keep the law and thus be uh, obedient people of God and reflecting God's character to the world. And then a little later in that same chapter, there's this statement, this picture of what happened after the Old Covenant was ratified. There was an animal killed, there was blood scattered on the people, and then this scene occurs it says and then Moses Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel listen to this and they beheld God and ate and drank God is making promises with His old covenant people, the nation of Israel, and to ratify that there's spilt blood of an animal, and then there's a meal. God sharing a meal with His people. Amazing reality that even in the midst of fall and sinful humanity, God is moving toward His people, demonstrating His desire for close, intimate fellowship, and He's doing it in a meal. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse, we can start at 23. Part of the nation of Israel's commands and laws given to them by God was that they would tithe. Verse 22, just to give a little background, says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Verse 23, And before the Lord your God, keep that little phrase, before the Lord your God in the place that He will choose to make His name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and your flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Go down to verse 26 just to see the extravagance of this feast that Israel was called to have. Verse 26, and spend the money for whatever you desire. Don't take that out of context, people. Spend the money, especially if you're going on a shopping trip. Spend the money on whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God. And rejoice, you and your household. He's instituted a feast for Israel. That all the stuff that they were collecting through the tithes, the crops, the grains, all these things were to be gathered, and once a year, they were to throw this extravagant feast and enjoy the food that God had given them. Uh, notice the, 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 this whole thing was to be done in the presence of the Lord, before the Lord. The idea is fellowship. You're to eat as if God is among you. You're to eat in His presence. And the joy that comes from eating is to be worship to God. This is a a meal. Another meal set up for Israel. It is to remind them of the bounty of God's provision. I think if you were an an Israelite at this point, you were meant to reflect on the goodness of God during this meal, the bounty of His provision for you, even to recall to mind God's original state for humanity, which was Eden, where everything was given to humanity to enjoy. It's like a reminder of what God is really like. He is this generous and good and kind. And you might have noticed that I passed over, hint, hint, the most famous meal of all in the Old Testament, the Passover meal. You could go to a Jewish home even today, and they can walk through the Passover cedar with 
you. And we know that this has Old Testament origins. You could go all the way back to the book of Exodus, and you could go to verse, sorry, chapter 12, and you could see the time that this meal was instituted by God for the people of Israel. You guys know the story, Israel is on its way out of Egypt. You've probably heard this one before. Uh, Moses had told the Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go. He wasn't listening, and so the plagues came, and finally, uh, there's the final culmination of the plagues is that God is going to take the firstborn son of all the people in the land of Egypt. But before he does that, he says, hey, Israel, I want you to take a lamb. You're going to call this the Passover lamb. You're going to kill it. You're going to spill its blood. You're going to get the blood as if it's like, a, on, on, like a, you're painting it on the top of your door so that when the angel of the Lord passes through, passes over, it'll see the shed blood of the lamb, and you will not be judged by God. Instead, the Egyptians will bear the judgment. And that's the most familiar part of it, but we sometimes forget that God gave them an entire meal to enjoy. In chapter 12, verse 8, thou shalt eat the flesh of that night. That was the lamb, the Passover lamb. Eat the flesh that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. A little bit down in chapter 12, verse 26, this whole idea of this meal was to be passed down from generation to generation. Verse 26, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. What was the intent of the meal? It's that every time you sat around and you've had the, this particular meal, the lamb that's roasted, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, you were to remember God's amazing salvation from slavery in Egypt. You were to remember the provision of God. You were also to remember the judgment of God that fell on Egypt and your salvation by the blood of the lamb, which will then be carried on as we know hint, hint, to this very morning as we think about communion. Isn't it fascinating that God ordains meals for his people? Uh, isn't it fascinating that he ordains, plans, hosts special meals for his people for remembering, for rejoicing, for fellowship with him and with others? Uh, what's amazing is that this doesn't end. You go to the very end of the Bible. And you get to Revelation chapter 19. You know what you find in verse 9? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. <laughs> A time of utmost rejoicing. Of freedom from sin. Total fellowship with each other and with God. Free from the curse perfected by Christ, glorified in Him, able to perfectly enjoy the feast that God has given His people. This is what we're looking forward to. I find it amazing, uh, thrilling, that God is not such an ascetic, that He does not disdain a good, hearty meal, and that one day we will enjoy a real meal with our Lord in heaven. This is amazing. God is preparing a meal, a place for us where we will enjoy uh, His bounty, His provision, His blessing, and it will come even at that point in heaven in the form of a meal as we gather around the marriage supper of the Lamb. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 now because it's here that Jesus institutes a meal for the church. It's here that Jesus gives the church a meal. He is talking to his disciples, just to get you a little context. It's right before Peter denies him. It's right before he goes to Gethsemane to pray through the night. It's right before he gets arrested and taken to the cross. We know this as the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. We're in the upper room. And for a little context, this is the night of the Passover. Every Jewish family that was faithful to adhere to the Old Testament law at this point would have been celebrating the Passover. That meal that had been going on for 
about this, up to this point, it had been going on for about 1,500 years. This is the oldest tradition for Israel ever given. The, the Passover feast was initiated before even the law was given, before the tabernacle was made. This is the oldest tradition for thousands of years this had been done. And now Jesus, again, he's joined with his disciples. He's about to take it. And friends, this is the last time this Passover meal will be taken by God's people. Sure, it will continue by some Jewish sects all of the way throughout even to this day, but at this point, the, Jesus is bringing it to a conclusion. It is no longer necessary for the people of God to do Passover because God has ordained a new meal to take the place of the Passover. He is actually about to transform the Passover, Jesus is, and he's going to give a new covenant meal that we know is communion. So let's just look at it. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. This would have been the unleavened bread that was mentioned in Exodus chapter 12. It was normal for them to have this at the Passover, of course, and so Jesus is not doing anything new. He's taking the bread. He's blessing it. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Normally, in this setting, the person leading uh, the Passover meal would be silent There'd be no explanation because this had been explained for thousands of years. It would be at the moment uh, something that was done in contemplation and quietness. And here Jesus breaks custom, breaks tradition. Jesus takes the bread after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. This is my body. He goes on and he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom the normal elements of the Passover meal are hereby transformed by Jesus Christ. He takes the bread, unleavened bread, and he holds it up to his disciples. He says, this is my body. Now just to be clear, he is not teaching that somehow the elements of the bread are actually miraculously transformed into the physical body of Christ as some have taught in the past. He is presenting a new symbol. He is declaring that now this bread, which in the past had meant something else to the Jews, was now to mean something different. I want you, when you take this bread, to think about my body. I think in Luke he says, this is my body broken for you. He is causing his disciples to reflect on the reality of the incarnation and eventual suffering of the Son of God. That's what he's doing. Think about this as my body. Think of my incarnation. Think of me going to the cross. Think of me dying for you. It says that he gives thanks after that. And the word in Greek for giving thanks is eucharisto, or eucharisteo. It's where we get the word eucharist, to give thanks. He takes that cup, and they would have had several cups. It was part of the way they did the Passover. He takes one of the cups, and he tells them all, now, this is my blood. Again, there's nothing miraculous going on the actual elements. It's not literally transforming into the actual blood of Jesus. He is giving a symbol to His disciples. Here's a symbol. When you take this, I want you to think of My blood. The blood of the covenant. And just as in the old covenant, a lamb was slain and blood was sprinkled as a ratification of the promises of God around that covenant. So now, during this new covenant and these new promises given to the church, I want you to remember my blood. That I died and I shed my blood to prove that my promises are in fact going to pass. 
See, God promises in the new covenant to forgive the sins of everyone who trusts in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the promise of the new covenant. It's that you don't get salvation by obedience to the rules. You don't get salvation by working hard enough to earn your way into God's favor. This is God's promise to us today is that by faith alone, apart from any works of the law, apart from any effort in earning, that we can simply trust in Jesus Christ, His body dying for us, His blood shed for us, and by faith alone, we're saved, forgiven, adopted. If you haven't become a member of the new covenant, it's actually quite simple. It's by faith. You must believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came, lived a perfect sinless life, died as a substitute on the cross, rose again perfectly on the third day, declaring forgiveness of sins to everyone who repents and believes, and you can this very moment become a part of the new covenant promises simply by this, trusting in the body and blood of Christ. That he died for you, he rose for you, his blood was shed for you, and by trusting in him, the shed blood cleanses you from all your sin. And this reality is now meant to be brought up again and again and again for the church every time we take communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. This is what we're meant to remember. So this meal now instituted by Jesus here in Matthew 26, it's mentioned in the other Gospels. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians. This meal has been given to the church and this meal has been a centerpiece for church life from that point forward all the way up to this very day. And in this very moment, not this actual moment, right this moment, but in a moment, in a little while, we're going to be taking the communion meal together. And we're going to be doing it in a long line of faithful, godly churches that have done this and have remembered the work of Christ for them. It's a thrilling reality that we get to do this. And so I want to make sure we know how to do it. You might say, oh, of course I know how to do this, Eric. I get up out of my seat, I go get the stuff, I eat it, I go sit down. Oh, this my, maybe there's a little more to it than that. So we're going to think about this, and we're going to think about how should we approach the table how do we take communion? How is it that a church should approach this sacred and divine meal that God wants to use to enjoy fellowship with His people? I want to look at the Word and, and, and see how we ought to approach this. And I have four ways we approach the meal. Four ways we approach the meal. Here's our first way. We approach the meal looking back. Looking back. See, Jesus already mentioned, use the bread to say this is my body. Use the cup to say this is my blood. He wants you to think of the physical, actual realities behind the symbols. The point is not to get caught up in the symbols. If we get caught up in the symbols, we miss the point. And the point of the bread and the point of the cup is to remind us of what was actually the physical reality of what happened there okay this meal is to bring us back in time to set us at the foot of Golgotha where we look up and see our Savior on the cross this is meant to remind us what he did and how he accomplished salvation for us remember that scene where Jesus is on the cross at the very end of the Gospel of John, and John's there, and his mother Mary is there looking up at the cross. Well, this is what we do this morning. We go back to the cross too. We go back as if we're there. We go back and remember the body of Christ. We go back and remember the blood of Christ. And these words that we read from Scripture that Jesus said, take this, this is my body, drink this, this is my blood, this is not the preacher saying this, this is Jesus among us giving us this meal, reminding us of the reality of what these things symbolize. Friends, think of the gravity of what we're doing. Think about this, that Jesus said, this is my body broken 
for you. Think about that. What does that mean? His body on a cross, his blood being shed for you. What does this mean? One of the things this means is that when he's on the cross, suffering, dying, he is doing this in your place. You see this? As a substitute for you. He is taking your guilt, your sin, your shame, your failure upon himself, and then he is standing in as your substitute to take then on the punishment that you deserved. That's why we love the cross. And when we go to the table, we are to remember his body on the cross and the blood of the cross. Think about this. Think of the physical nature of what he did. We can sometimes forget about this. He's there on the cross. He's thirsty. He's dangling there. He had been whipped and beaten and spit upon. The bones of his feet shattered by a spike. The ligaments of his hands torn through by nails. A crown of thorns shoved into his scalp. He is there on the cross being made fun of by the people he created. He is being, he's being ridiculed, teased, spit upon. Think of the, the, the other things that are going on. He is treated, though God, he's being treated like he's a criminal. What a scandal is this? One author is writing about the, 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 the reason crucifixion was so popular in the Roman Empire. And it was more than the fact that it hurt a lot. Part of the reasons the Romans did crucifixion was because it was such a means of degrading the person who was hanging on the cross. It was a dehumanizing that person. The author writes, crucifixions as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express, listen, as its express purpose, the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be said too strongly. That was its function. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with the subversive ideas that crucified persons were not in the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore only expendable but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Therefore, the mocking and jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle and were programmed into it. In a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that, this, that the specific role of the passerby was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had been thus designated to be the spectacle. The crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings according to the Christian gospel, the Son of God voluntarily and purposefully absorbed all of that, drawing it into Himself. There He is, your Savior, on the cross. That's where communion takes us. Think of that moment of Him mangled and mocked and beaten and hanging there, suffocating for the lack of being able to breathe, and hear Him say to you, this is my body for you. This is my blood for you. Why is He on the cross? Because He loves us. And He took names to the cross to pay for their sins. This is why He died. You ought to take the meal, the bread and the cup, and you ought to think, oh, how loved I am by God. How loved I am by my Savior. That He would do this for me. God, whom I have only offended, in light of His holiness, I've only deserved the just punishment of wrath. 
And out of his love, he came for me to take the wrath that I deserved. What love is this that we share as believers? The love of God for sinners should be at the forefront as we reflect on the body and blood of Christ. Friends, don't get this wrong. Communion is not re-sacrificing Jesus as if the work is not done. It is finished. We are just remembering what He has already done. And so we go and we take communion looking back. But we also take communion looking forward. It's our second point. Take communion looking forward. Look at verse 29 if you're still in Matthew 26. He tells them of a coming kingdom. Verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Almost an odd thing to say on the eve of the crucifixion, unless you're God incarnate, which of course that's what Jesus is. He says, I'm not going to drink this fruit again. I'm not going to be able to enjoy the fruit of the vine until... Uh, until, that means right now I won't, but there will be a time that I will. And he says, until that day when I drink it new with you. <laughs> I love those two words. I'm going to drink this again, and I'm going to drink it with you guys. It's going to happen again. I'm going to drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so the intention of the communion meal is not merely to look back at the cross, but to look forward to the coming kingdom of God. See, here we are as we stand here, uh, I'm standing, you're sitting, as we sit here in this room and we think about what this meal means, we are in some ways being defiant. In some ways, the rest of the world is, is going dark. Uh, the rest of the world is saying, uh, we, we're going to go back to dust and that's the end of our lives and eternity. There is no eternity. There's no life after death. Life is just one meaningless blip on the radar. And here we come in defiance of that worldview and we say, oh, no, 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 no. There is darkness, yes. Yeah, the shadow is real. But listen, there's a kingdom coming. I mean, it's almost the stuff of fairy tales. We actually believe there's a kingdom coming, that the king will come soon and he will make everything right. And this meal that we take is like a foretaste of the kingdom where we are reminded that one day we'll do it again with Jesus. And it will be everything that we ever wished for and dreamed for in the kingdom. See, uh, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. And there's this scene in, in Return of the King that I couldn't help but think about when I was studying this in the books. Uh, the last book, Samwise, is in Mordor, and it's dark, and it's scary, and he's afraid. But then there's this paragraph where Tolkien writes about something that happened to him in the darkness. He says, there, peeping among the cloud rack, Above a dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing and there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. When we take the meal, we say the shadow is a passing thing. We look around and we are realists. We see that there is death. We see that there is disease. That there is suffering. That there is pain. We see filth. We see brokenness. And it breaks our hearts. And we come to the table. We say there's a kingdom coming. And Jesus is returning. And he's fixing all broken things. And he's going to bring his people into the land. He's prepared the earth that he has restored, the new heavens and the new earth, forever to enjoy him. And all the bounty of the new heavens and new earth will be given to us, and we will feast like kings and queens forever. It's almost too good to be true. 
But this is what we do when we come to the table. We look forward to that day. So we're looking back at the cross. We're looking forward at the kingdom. But there's also another way to look. We're looking inward at our hearts. We're looking inward at our hearts. You can turn to see what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul has, has to cor- Paul has to correct the Corinthian church because they've been taking communion in an unworthy way. And in verse 27, Paul writes to them, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Do you see that? Let a person examine himself. Think about your heart. Think about where you are in your relationship with the Lord. Think about your relationship with the other people that you're sharing the meal with. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He goes on to say in verse 30, that's why some of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Isn't that amazing? Is that people in the church were so profaning the Lord's table that God saw fit to strike them dead or to make them sick? That's how serious God takes this symbol of a meal. And so when we're taking this, well, we fear the Lord and we want to honor and glorify Him. So we go into this occasion with a gravity among us and a self-examination. This is not to be taken lightly. We don't want to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Now, just to be clear, I've known some people, I remember talking to a person one time who hadn't taken communion hadn't taken communion in months and start asking why and and what's going on and they just felt that they were not good enough. Uh, They had not obeyed good enough. Their obedience faltered. They didn't feel like they loved the Lord enough. And for them, they felt like there was some magic degree of spiritual holiness that made them worthy to come to the table. And until they reached that line, they felt they couldn't come to the table. They were, they were not worthy to come to the table. They were afraid of taking communion in an unworthy manner, and so they never really took communion. Some people have a hard week, and then they feel like they shouldn't take communion because they sinned that week. Now, I just want to say that taking communion in an unworthy manner is not referring to what I just described. No one comes, listen, no one comes to the table because they deserve it or are worthy. That's the beauty of the table. Is that no one comes because they've earned it or because they've reached a line that no one else is there yet. No one comes because they're good enough. That's the point. That's why this is a representation of the gospel. Because the gospel is not about people earning their right into the presence of God. And so we come to the table, you come with your baggage and your sin, you come repentingly, but you come with confession and forgiveness is yours in Christ. To come in an unworthy manner doesn't mean, oh, I sinned this week, I'm now barred from the table. If you've sinned this week, what do you do? Ask for forgiveness. Confess your sins and He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And you have a right to the table with the rest of us. See, this is the picture of the gospel here is that no one's deserving of this. No one's deserving of the body and blood of Christ. This is why it's so beautiful. We come in every single one of us, whether you became a Christian this morning or you became a Christian years and years ago, before the cross, it's a level playing field. There, there, there's no hierarchy of spiritual worthiness when we're looking at the crucified Savior. And so what does he mean? We, we do have to answer that question. Well, what does he mean when he's talking about taking communion in an unworthy way? If you look at the context, it's pretty clear. The whole section is about the church bickering and fighting with one another before they're coming to the table. If you look back in chapter 11, verse 17, he says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. 
It's like every church gathering. It's just the fighting. It's bickering. Verse 18, he describes divisions. Uh, there's factions in verse 19. The whole gathering of the congregation is characterized by selfishness. Uh, they were starting the communion meal without waiting for people to show up. Uh, the some of the poor were going hungry. Uh, some of the rich were getting drunk. It was a zoo in the Corinthian church. And so he's saying, hey, I don't want you to come in to take communion just thinking about yourself. Think about you getting yours, and you go to the table and you do your thing without any concern about anybody else. He's not saying, he's, he is, he's saying to take communion in an unworthy way is to take it individualistically without any concern of the rest of the body. To take it worthily then, and this is how we need to examine ourselves, is we take communion with our eyes open, uh, about, uh, thinking about not only our commitment to Christ, but our commitment to the people around us. We're thinking about Christ. We're thinking about our brothers and sisters. You might ask, well, who's barred from communion then? Is anyone barred? Is this, is this, can anyone just come and take this? The people who should not take communion are the unrepentant. If there is sin that you are not repenting of, you know it's sin, you're aware of the issues, and you are holding on to it in rebellion against God, that would be profaning the table of the Lord. If there are relational issues with people in this room that you are unwilling to fix, for whatever reason, you don't want to ask for forgiveness or you don't want to talk to the person and work it through. There's a conflict that you are not willing to resolve. That would be a time for you to step aside from communion until you fix that thing and then you can come back to the table freely, freely. And so Jesus wants us to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. Examine your relationships. Examine if there's any unrepentant sins that you're just not willing to give up. And as soon as you examine yourself, you say, Father, thank you for the forgiveness that offer, is offered to me in Christ. Thank you that you gave your body and your blood and I come to the table humbly knowing I do not deserve this. But look inward. And here's our last way we take communion take communion looking around. Sometimes in churches, it's such a somber moment. Everyone's got their head down, staring at the floor, and they go take the, the, take the bread and the cup, and you don't really notice that anyone else is doing it too. Sometimes in churches, it's a bunch of individuals that happen to be doing it at the same time. But what's the Bible teaching on this subject is that communion is a church thing that the corporate body does in unity together. Uh, look, at, you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me just point out that communion was a, an event for the whole body to do together. Verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Skip to verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, sometime later, when you come together, wait for one another. Verse 34, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Communion verse 4, when they came together. That was the point of communion. It wasn't something individuals did. It wasn't something families did. It wasn't something small groups did. It was for the church, corporately gathered, and they were to take it in the right way together. And so one of the implications of this reality is that communion is more than just a you and God thing. It's a you and God and everybody else who's doing this thing. And that when you take communion, there ought to be a sense of unity and responsibility, and commitment to the people who are taking the communion with you. You can go back in a chapter, go to chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, and you can look at verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And listen to this, look at verse 17. Because there's one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Isn't that interesting? In communion, the many partaking of the one bread become one. It is a symbolic reality that when the church takes communion together, there is a unifying work of the Spirit happening among us. As we remember the cross, 
as we examine our hearts, as we think about this coming king, kingdom, we, we look around and we see who's taking and we go, I am one with these people. I'm committed to them. It isn't, like I said, a private devotional act. It, we all happen to be doing it at the same time. It is, in fact, something we do with our eyes open, looking around, and we say, these are my people. This is my family. This is whom I'm committing to. And so what this means is that in baptism, we talked about this last week, baptism, the one becomes part of the many. Communion, the many become one. Baptism is welcome into the family. Communion's the family meal. You can think of it this way, 10 years ago-ish, Ashley and I got married. We made public vows. We made commitments to each other before the whole group gathered there. We committed our lives to one another. Once for all, we exchanged rings to symbolize our commitments to each other. But then after that, we regularly went on date nights, family vacations. We share a meal together on an almost nightly basis. We're committed to each other, not only to make that one thrall vow, but then to live out the vows on a regular basis. And this is baptism and communion. Baptism is, here I am, I'm committing to Christ, I'm committing to you, I'm part of the family. And then communion is the regular family gatherings, the regular times at the table. It's the living out of the vows, which, by the way, is why baptism always comes before communion. You say you're Wedding vows before you consummate your marriage. You must come through the front door before you sit down at the family's table. This is what churches have always believed until about 100 years ago, that baptism is first and communion is second. The logic is simple. If the church is made up of baptized believers, and it is, and communion is for the church, and it is, then communion is for those who have been baptized. And so here's what you're thinking when you take communion. Here's what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, these people who are taking communion have made commitments. They've made their faith known. They recognize the church as their family. They're all in and I'm all in with them. I'm with them. I'm committed to them. And so here's our desire at Grace Rancho is that in all the ways God has taught us to, we want to make the gospel very, very clear, right? In the preaching, we want to hear the gospel. In the scripture readings, we want to read the gospel. In the singings, we want to sing the gospel. And in the ordinances of baptism and communion, we want to see it reenacted. The gospel played out, visualized for us in the way God has taught us to do it. So now it's almost time to actually do this. We're about to take and eat. Think about those words. Take and eat. Used by Satan to tempt humanity into the fall, to bring the curse into the world. And yet those same words, taken by Christ, turned into something new, now become vocabulary of life. Christ says to us, take and eat. One commentator on Genesis 3 says, referring to the act of taking and eating the forbidden fruit, so simple the act, so hard the undoing, but God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. So this morning, we're invited to a meal in which Jesus is the host. We are invited to look back at the cross, the body and blood of Christ. We are invited to look forward to the beauty of a coming kingdom where we will dine with our Savior. We are called to look inward, to examine ourselves, to confess sin, to make things right with God and with one another. We're called to look around. Because these are the people we're becoming one with as a church. These are the people we've committed ourselves to. Here's what we're going to do. 
We've set up on either side of the room, as you see, over here and over here, a table that has the bread and the cup. Because we believe that communion is to be done with our eyes open, we're going to have you stand up and go take communion at the appropriate time. To go, sorry, not take it, you'll go grab the elements, you'll grab your cup, grab your bread, and then you will move back to your seat, okay? You will not take it standing up, you'll move back to your seat. Then, because we also understand the meal to represent unity, we're going to take it together. So I will read through just real quickly, again, the statements that Jesus made about taking the bread and taking the cup, and then we will take them in a unified way to symbolize our union with Christ and union with one another. So if you've trusted Christ, you've made that profession of faith public in baptism, you are welcome to the table. If you're not a Christian, first of all, let me invite you to trust Christ this morning. You can come and be a member of this church and trust in Christ being fully a part of all the benefits that Christ offers His people. If you haven't moved forward in baptism yet, let me encourage you to move forward in obedience to Christ in that way. And yet, if you have not yet been baptized, I would ask you to let this time pass. Michael's going to come up. He's going to play some background music, and then we're going to take it together. Before we do this, let's pray. So, Father, thank you for a meal. You've been doing this from the beginning. And Lord, I thank you that this meal symbolizes your great desire to have fellowship with your people. And that in doing this, we experience a closeness to you, an understanding of how you've come near to us in Christ. And Lord, we experience even the work of the Holy Spirit in uniting us together. So Lord, as we do this, I pray that we would do it in a worthy way, that Christ would be magnified your church would be edified, that we would all be helped. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.